Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 769 for the 12th of November, 2021. This week, for the second year in a row, the COVID pandemic transformed Adobe Max from an exciting in-person event to an exciting virtual event. We'll take a look at some of the updates released at Max. In short circuits, if you think you'll never be involved in a data breach, think again. It's entirely too easy to have your information stolen, even if you do nothing wrong. A small utility called Tray Status can display the status of certain computer settings in the tray. That much should be obvious, but it does a lot more. In spare parts, only on the website, Microsoft is introducing a new and better store for Windows 10 and Windows 11 users, and it's better for consumers, not just better for Microsoft. Social engineering continues to be one of the most successful tools that scammers can use. Caution continues to be the primary defense. And 20 years ago, digital camera manufacturers were rushing to create the perfect consumer camera, one that would create two megapixel images and cost no more than $1,000. Today, you could buy a digital camera with far better resolution for less than $50. Adobe's annual Max conference at the end of October was held virtually for the second year in a row. The excitement isn't the same without the tens of thousands of attendees who use Photoshop, InDesign, Audition, Illustrator, Premiere, and others among Adobe's 20-some applications, but the advantage is that the conference is free for anyone to attend. Most sessions and labs from this year's program will be available on demand until next year's program. Viewers need to sign up for a free Adobe account and then the 400 or so sessions are viewable on the Adobe Max website. One of the highlights for me was a fabulous session on animation that included a cat taking a bath on a chair in the background. Additionally, one big advantage of having an online virtual conference is the ability to attend while lying in bed, wearing shorts and a t-shirt, watching the conference on television, and being attended to by a cat. Adobe's big annual conference comes with equal parts of excitement and dread. Excitement because the company invariably announces several huge new applications or features and hundreds of smaller enhancements. Dread because the company invariably announces several huge new applications or features and hundreds of small enhancements. There is simply so much that's new every year that it's difficult to determine where to look. Add to that the sneak peeks at new features that are still in development and may or may not ever appear, and it's even harder to put together a coherent explanation of what has changed. So this week I'll describe a few of the actual changes that are on Creative Cloud users' computers right now. 
26 downloads were available to users on the 26th of October, most as new versions or enhancements of existing versions, a few new components that are included in Creative Cloud, and several new 3D development tools that can be added separately. Adobe acquired Substance 3D in the past year and has now added their Painter, Designer, Sampler, and Stager applications as add-ons to Creative Cloud with an additional fee of $40 per month. As impressive as these applications are in the hands of someone who knows how to use them, they are highly specialized and unlikely to be needed by most Creative Cloud users. For that reason, I won't be discussing them here, or probably ever, but perhaps now is a good time to talk about prices. Most of the individual apps, such as Photoshop, Premiere Pro, Illustration, InDesign, and After Effects, cost $21 per month. A photography plan that includes Lightroom, Lightroom Classic, Photoshop on desktop and iPad, and 20 gigabytes of cloud storage costs $10 a month. The full Creative Cloud package, which includes all of the applications except the 3D components, is $53 a month, paid annually $600, or $599.88. Adobe Stock can be added for $30 a month, and it includes the ability to download up to 10 images per month without additional charge. The photography plan at $10 a month is a great value, yet I know people who complain about it being a ripoff. Anyone who's old enough to remember buying film and paying for processing should think back to those days. Anyone who was even slightly serious about photography spent more than $10 a month for those items and still had to accept prints that the drugstore or photo store provided. Unless we worked with a professional lab or had our own dark rooms, we couldn't even crop photos, much less modify color, brightness, contrast, and all of the other things we can do now easily on computers. The full Creative Cloud package is also a good deal for anyone who needs more than two of the applications. So let's take a quick look at just a few of the features that are new in Creative Cloud 2022. Photoshop introduced neural filters last year. The filters that were released then have been updated and improved, and some new filters have been added. This is clearly a work in progress, and not all of the new features work well, even with carefully selected photos. I tested an image of a man without a smile and used a neural filter to add a smile and then to make him look somewhat sad. I was satisfied with the results of that test. This was a filter that was introduced last year and improved this year. Check the images out on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. These changes would be unacceptable for a personal portrait. That's because the teeth probably are nothing like the subject's real teeth. But it would work for an advertising or illustration photo that needed a man with a smile. Now, there is a bit of artifacting above the subject's right ear in the third picture. Check that out. But overall, the results are remarkable. One neural filter that didn't work very well was an attempt to change the season from summer to fall in a photograph. The filter missed most of the foliage and instead modified signs and buildings. Adobe notes that these features depend on feedback from users and that the filters should be considered to be in beta testing. Beta filters might work really well on certain types of images, not so well on others. 
but Adobe notes they will improve with input from users. The object selection tool has been improved. It's now better able to detect objects within an image. Selection uses Adobe's Sensei artificial intelligence machine learning models. Better doesn't mean perfect, though. When selections work as intended, the user will save a huge amount of time. When selections don't work as expected, they're usually close enough that the selection needs a lot less manual work than before, so again, a time savings. And for those situations in which it doesn't work at all, the traditional manual methods are still available, and you'll have wasted only a minute or two testing out the new features. Lightroom and Lightroom Classic both have better selection tools that open the door to more realistic local modifications without having to go to Photoshop. Advanced masking tools can make selections based on color and luminance. This allows editing of specific areas so the resulting image more closely matches what your eye saw when you created the photograph. Adobe released seven premium preset packs in the mid-year update, and the October release adds eight more categories. Black and white, food, landscape, urban architecture, lifestyle, retro, travel to, and cinematic to. Presets give photographers the ability to make overall changes to images, so they'll have more time to spend with individual smaller tweaks and enhancements. To test this out, I used a photo of a pizza from 600 downtown in Bell Fountain and applied one of the specialized food filters. The result is a very subtle change that places more emphasis where it should be, on the pizza. Illustrator and Photoshop will both have new online capabilities. Both desktop and iPad versions enable users to access the applications on various devices without having to install the app. Both will have web interfaces with limited editing capabilities at first. This is currently a beta program. Although it's a public beta, users still need to sign up on Adobe's website. There's a link to the sign-up page on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Illustrator supports share for commenting so users can show a document to others for quick feedback. Illustrator generates a web link that can be sent to others. Because the review process is conducted entirely on the web, those the link is shared with don't need to have Illustrator installed. Private betas hint at features to come. Creative Cloud Spaces are intended to improve collaboration across teams by putting everything team members need in a single location. This includes project files, libraries, and external links so that all team members have access to project resources from start to finish. Spaces will be accessible in desktop and mobile apps via Creative Cloud Web and available in Photoshop, Illustrator, Fresco, and XD. Creative Cloud Canvases will allow teams to lay out, visualize, and review creative work in real time using a web browser. Canvases can hold shapes, text, images, stickers, and links to documents from Creative Cloud apps. Users can then make quick edits to the original asset online or download them and make changes in the appropriate app on their computers. Deeper looks at the new applications and improvements to existing apps will follow as I have time to analyze them. And there are a lot of them. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, 
and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, sometimes even if you do everything exactly right, you can still be victimized by criminals. A recent edition of Mozilla's Internet Culture blog described a seemingly unlikely series of events. The victim in this case wasn't named, so I'll call her Lucy. That might be her real name, but it's probably not because, as I said, the blog didn't name her. Lucy received a text from her bank one morning that said her credit card account had what appeared to be a fraudulent charge. Scammers sometimes use phony notices like that to trick people into revealing their login credentials, but a call to the bank revealed that her credit card had indeed been used for a fraudulent purchase. She then received an email order confirmation for an electronic device that she hadn't purchased. It was to be shipped to an address that turned out to be a local hotel. The order had been cancelled by the bank, Lucy's bank issued her a new credit card, and she changed her login credentials. But she wondered if someone had managed to install Keylogger software on her computer. The thief had tried to ship the fraudulent order using FedEx, with the fee being billed to Lucy. FedEx wanted its money, even though the bank had flagged the transaction as a fraud. It took several phone calls, but Lucy eventually convinced FedEx to, to stop harassing her. The problem actually began earlier, when Lucy clicked a link on Instagram and bought an item as a gift for her husband. The item arrived, and the family enjoyed the personalized gift. Three months after placing the ill-fated order, Lucy received a message from the merchant. The hosting company the merchant had used had misconfigured the server, and that gave crooks access to data in real time. Why did the hosting company make such an error? Why did it take the merchant three months to announce the problem? Why did FedEx continue to demand payment despite knowing the charge was fraudulent? From beginning to end, Lucy had done nothing wrong, absolutely nothing. The charges were credited by the bank. FedEx finally let the matter drop. But Lucy had spent a considerable amount of time dealing with a problem that she wasn't responsible for. This is important. As frustrating as it was, this was far less severe than what could have happened. There was just a single fraudulent charge, plus the FedEx mess, of course. Lucy's identity hadn't been stolen. Privacy B says harm from identity theft can take years to resolve and be a drag on the victim's credit score. In most cases, it's possible to get your credit back on track, Privacy B says, but you'd better be willing to put some serious effort in to do it if you fall victim to identity theft. If you don't already have identity theft insurance, your out-of-pocket costs could be substantial. Privacy B quotes a 2021 report by Javelin Strategy and Research that says the average loss for a victim of identity theft is $1,100. So be sure to review your credit card statement every month. The bank caught Lucy's problem, and banks are getting much better at spotting fraud, 
but scam charges go unnoticed if they're small. A crook who manages to add a $9 monthly fee to credit card accounts of 10,000 victims will siphon off a little more than a million dollars in a single year. Do you look at every charge, no matter how small? The Mozilla blog says, if you get snagged in a data breach, tie up any loose threads quickly to protect yourself and stay on top of monitoring your accounts for suspicious activity. If you'd like to read the full account, it's on the Mozilla website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Although most computer keyboards have lights that show the status of number lock, caps lock, and scroll lock, having a notification on the taskbar can be helpful too. A free utility displays this information and more. Some of the features of tray status may seem a little more than odd. For example, it's possible to double-click a status option to toggle the settings state. Is it really easier to open the notification area, locate the caps lock status indicator, then double-click it to turn caps lock on or off? Most people would simply accomplish that task by pressing the caps lock key on the keyboard. However, that doesn't work for me. That's because I detest all caps typing, and I have disabled the caps lock key with a registry edit. On those extremely rare situations in which I do need to type something in all caps, I have to hold down the shift key while typing. Now that's okay for a word or two, but less suitable if extended sections of text need to be in capital letters. So this is not a common situation. In fact, I can think of only one use case long ago. I occasionally needed to modify text in a scripting application that depended on code being written in capital letters. In a case like that, being able to open the notification area and double-click a caps lock icon would have been much easier than having to hold a pinky finger on one of the shift keys while typing. That's probably not a use case you'll ever need, and it's completely unimportant if you've not disabled the caps lock key. But maybe you'd like a notification area icon that shows how much disk activity is occurring. Again, most computers have a light that indicates when data is being written to or read from a disk. But the light doesn't tell us how much activity is happening, and it doesn't indicate which disk has activity. My primary computer has several disk drives. The disk activity indicator is on the notebook, not on any of the monitors or the keyboard. Just seeing whether there's any disk activity requires me to turn aside and look at the notebook, which is off to the right side. And even then, I don't know what's really going on. Tray status can show me that disks C and D both have concurrent read and write activity. And when I hover the mouse cursor over the icon for drive D, I can see that 2.1 megabytes of data is being written to the drive each second, and 2.6 megabytes of data is being read each second. CPU and memory usage can also be displayed, but only by the Pro version, which costs $10. Not $10 a year, just $10. A $15 version allows installation on all of the computers you own. Selecting an item to display on the settings screen adds a status icon in the notification area. You'll see a screenshot on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and there I have placed a yellow line under all of the disk drive icons. 
Trigger is another feature that's available only in the Pro version. Perhaps you'd like to ensure that NumLock is activated whenever you launch a spreadsheet application. This might be important on a computer that doesn't have dedicated arrow keys because many people turn off NumLock in this case in favor of having access to the cursor keys. The triggers can adjust NumLock, Caps Lock, and Scroll Lock whenever a specific application has focus. So when you're working with Excel, NumLock will be on, but NumLock will be disabled if you switch from Excel to Word, even if Excel is still running. Or maybe you want both Caps Lock and NumLock to be active when you're working with Excel, and both to be off when you're working with Word. A $10 or $15 one-time payment seems like a reasonable cost for that kind of functionality. If you'd like to see more about Trace Status, visit the Binary Fortress website. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The status of either NumLock or CapsLock is unimportant to your enjoyment of spare parts. Direct your browser to the TechBiter Worldwide website. This week, you'll find these articles. Microsoft is introducing a new and better store for Windows 10 and Windows 11 users, and it's better for consumers, not just better for Microsoft. Social engineering continues to be one of the most successful tools that scammers can use. Caution continues to be the primary defense. And 20 years ago, digital camera manufacturers were rushing to create what they considered to be the perfect consumer camera, one that would create two megapixel images and cost no more than $1,000. Today you could buy a digital camera with far better resolution for less than $50. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.